The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. To Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights to how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And today I'm delighted to welcome to the show Lucy Wyatt, who has recently written a book called Approaching Chaos. Could an ancient archetype save 21st century civilization? Lucy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Peter. Well, thank you. Well, this is a, an epic of a book. This wasn't uh, written in a few hours uh, <laughs> sitting back and relaxing. So just tell us a bit about how it all came, all came about. Well, it came about um, easily more than 10 years ago. I mean, it was 10 years in, in, in the writing. But it did start out with a different focus. I was originally going to look at the origins of um, or some alternative medicines, in particular homeopathy. And I was poking around and looking at stuff to do with ancient Greeks. And then I realized there was more to, to all of it, a whole big civilization story. And uh, for a long time, I resisted looking at Egyptians and that kind of thing. And then I realized I had to bite the bullet. And the thing disappeared into another direction, which I have um, ended up publishing as, as, as the book in front of you. So, yes, it did, it did take a long, a long time. Mind you, I was doing other things at the same time. I wasn't sure, just yeah. writing books. <laughs> And it's a really well-researched book, and so you obviously uh, were taking off in, in many different directions to, uh, to, to find out all this information. Sure, sure. I, mean, I, most, I have to say I mostly use public libraries because I mostly wrote it, as it were, from my home, my home base, you know, because I had my family to look after um, and married with two, two children at, at the time, although they were being educated uh, some, somewhere else at the time, past that time. And that, that did free me up to, to do some of it. And some of it was, was as a result of travel, you know, for example, going to visit Egypt and, and that kind of, kind of thing. So, um, but I did try and get as much as I could from publicly available um, documents and books and, and, and so forth. Well, perhaps you could begin by just giving us um, a, an overview, which is difficult to do because it's a very dense book full of very pithy information. Um, but if you could just give us a general overview of, of what the book is about. Well, my, my basic thesis is that we, we are facing problems in the 21st century. We are facing potential eco-suicide, 
if for any reason our energy supplies fail, you know, whatever causes that, that loss, we could find that civilization is a very thin veneer, you know, it could collapse and be very unpleasant. And my idea is, is that if we go back into the ancient, ancient past, more than perhaps as much as 5,000 years ago, and we rediscovered what they knew, I think in the, particularly in the Bronze Age, they were very sophisticated. There is, I think, sufficient evidence of a total package of civilization, which means living in cities with sophistication. And uh, I think we should take our Bronze Age predecessors very seriously indeed and look at, look at how they lived and, and what their whole thought patterns were and, and learn a lot of lessons from them. That, that's really the theme of the book, to, to, to take the ancient past seriously as a blueprint for how we might go forward in the future. Well, that's a really nice little uh, summary. So let's just talk about the, the ancient past, and, and you can bring us forward at whatever speed you wish to. Sure. Because, because one of the issues that, that you mention in the book uh, is the, the involvement of, of natural disasters yes. which have happened from time to time on the planet and how, how that has shifted uh, things that, that were happening at the time on the planet. And obviously, as you've just said, right now in our time, uh, we have that potential too. Yes. So, so what were some of those uh, disasters of the past? Well, there have always been um, problems to do with things like big volcanic explosions, which then, uh, because so much um, dust is pushed into the atmosphere, you, you get uh, the sun's rays aren't as strong, so crops don't grow as well, and you can end up, in some cases, for many years of famine, as poor, poor crop failures as a result of that kind of episode. So throughout ancient history, you, you see that, that kind of thing repeated. But there have been one or two really spectacular catastrophes, and one in particular happened at, at the end of the 4th millennium BC, in about 3,159 BC or so. And nobody really quite knows what that catastrophe was, whether it was a comet that struck, struck the Earth, Something caused a major problem, and it could be the time of the Great Flood. It could be a time when suddenly um, beaches and whole forests were drowned and other parts of the globe um, came up out of the sea, that there was this major shift in, in, um, in the whole Earth's Earth structure. And that caused huge numbers of people to migrate and to move to what they perceived as safer ho homelands. And it really that's also the time when... Ancient Egypt, as we know it, um, really starts. Um, and, and so there, there have always been the, these, these, um, this potential for, for enormous catastrophes. And the important thing is to, to realize is that they were able to re, restart civilization after, after that end of the fourth millennium BC um, problem. And, and that's what also inspired me to, to write the book to see what it was that they did restart. And it's the same principles every time. I see. So that's what you're looking at now and, and how we can learn from that time period. Absolutely. So, so why was Egypt sorry. such an, an attractive uh, physical site at that time? Why, why were people migrating there? Well, there's a view that, that when this, this comet or whatever struck the Earth, there was what they call a line of neutrality, which runs on a, a longitudinal line, uh, sort of north-south poles, as it were, and that there were no major shifts up or down along this line of neutrality. 
and Egypt is placed on on that particular line, and so it's possible that that there was because um, it's after that time that what had been uh, a reasonably fertile area of savanna um, plains around the Nile became desert. It's, it's, the view is that that starts to dry up and become really arid after that time. So Egypt was already not looking that attractive as a, as a country. I mean, obviously the Nile makes it, makes it fertile, but, but the Nile in certain places, the vegetation, you can see desert very easily from the Nile. Um, it it's not, doesn't necessarily extend that far out from the river. So safety does, I think, have to be a very important motive for, for the Egyptians choosing, or the Mesopotamians possibly, choosing Egypt as a, as a site for relocating civilization. So let's talk about then how, from your understanding, after this catastrophe took place and we're now in Egypt, how did they begin to rebuild their civilization? Um, <clears throat> how they rebuilt it? Well, they came, possibly came through the eastern desert, and the eastern desert may well have been known to them as a site of, of, of gold mines. Um, to be honest, Peter, I don't really kind of go through the whole historic thing of, you know, which city, where, but, but, but the concepts, the, the principles of, of it are that the Egyptians kind of always recreated what they call um, the mound, the primeval mound, the mound of the first time, the Zep Tepe um, primal mound. And, um, and there's no, no doubt about it, there are certain sites in Egypt um, where, where this mound could, could be re reconstructed. And, and there's, there's sort of stories apparently on certain temples, I think it's at Edfu, which talk about the first time and some disaster, some explosion, and, and you know, the time of um, when everything turned to spirit because everything died, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so they always had this, this concept of starting from fundamentals um, in, 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 in their rituals and, and so forth. Um, and there probably are these sites all over Egypt in different places. Um, Neken is possibly one of one of those places. It could well be that um, something that's described as the Osiris shaft up. Robert Temple was talking about that at our um, forum here in Suffolk, England, last weekend. Um, the Osiris shaft is this um, very deep shaft found between the Sphinx and the... Um, Great Pyramid in the north of um, Egypt, where at the bottom of this very deep shaft, three levels down, is a, a sarcophagus on a mound with four pillars and a canal around it, which could be another reconstruction of this first time of this primal mound and a place used for for um, ritual, shamanic ritual, in order to, to re recreate. Because it's my view that they used shamanic ritual in order to reconnect with the ancestors to, to pass the knowledge on to do with civilization, which is why I think that the same ritual happens with civilizers in different parts of the world, and the principles are always pretty identifiable as being the same, whether it's Mesopotamia, Egypt, or Central and Southern America. So this is really interesting. So what, what we're saying then is that the pyramids and these mounds were set up 
uh, in a very specific geometric way with water yes. and certain stones yes. so that the particular people involved uh, were able to connect to the realms beyond the physical to yes. bring back information. Yes, and Robert Temple also stated um, at this forum that he and, um, I can't remember his nationality, but he and a friend of his who uh, is a nuclear physicist um, has got some special spectrometer or whatever, and in his view, the dating of the Great Pyramid at, at Giza could go back as far as this 3100 BC um, date. So it could be that the civilizers built the Great Pyramid um, immediately on, on arrival in Egypt, and it, it, and it was later taken over by those other pharaohs to whom these, these monuments are, are attributed. Um, he, he's got reasonably good grounds for, for believing that the dating method that he has is, is reliable. So that's kind of interesting that they would have created that then. Lucy, we're, we're coming up to our first break, but I want to pursue this with you further when we come back to talk about who the actual civilizers are or were, oh. who we believe they are, and the, the actual role in, that the pharaoh played in these uh, shamanic journeys. Sure, I was delighted. Uh, very interesting uh, beginning to the show. <laughs> and I, I'm delighted that we're getting into this because I think this is a really important element for us in uh, our world today, as you say, and that's why you wrote the book, which is fantastic. So this is uh, Peter Tung going to the first break, The Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. Four years ago, Peter Tung left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm. The Awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit petertongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at petertongue.com. What would you do if you came across a technology so profound that you move to balance within minutes of application and from that balance the body heals itself? We have the research, the testimonials, world-class health practitioners, and we conduct free demonstrations throughout North America and the world. Sound too good to be true? Click on the Amized Fusion Technology banner and find out for yourself and join us in a self-care revolution. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The new home for visionary positive change. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This is the last uh, in this series of 13 uh, shows, and I would just like to take the opportunity now to thank my sponsors for this 13-week series, Business Associates with Omega Global, and uh, you can listen to a couple of archive shows with Sam Adams and Patrick Cody, who talked about the Omega Global products and also talked about the zero-point energy and the fields of information with which the products work. And um, I'm looking forward to and also letting you know that we will be continuing with a, a new series beginning next week at this time, noon, West Coast time on Wednesday. So now back to, back to Lucy Wyatt. So Lucy, before the break, we were talking about uh, the Bronze Age and Egypt. And, and so I want to go back to that and just ask you who, who the civilizers of society were in those days. Well, it, that's a kind of um, $59 million question or whatever. Um, I mean, I think they were definitely different-looking people. Um, where they originally, originally came from is very, very hard to say, but uh, I think they're around in um, what's called the Golden Crescent, um, which is that area of mountains uh, through southern Turkey, uh, northern Iraq, and down through the west of Iran. Um, at least seven, eight thousand, nine thousand years ago, sometime after the end of the Ice Age, and and it's they who then at some point moved uh, to the south of Iraq to Mesopotamia and built the first cities about six thousand years ago or so. Um, but but who these people were very is very difficult to to actually say. But I, I, I myself have a feeling that they were, they were very different people. Um, it's possible that they were people with, with those strange um, shaped heads and, and so forth. You know, we see a lot of these mummies in, in South America with uh, deformed heads I think in Peru and places. So they, they could well have been part of that same group of, of, of priests and priestesses who were around then. So were they human beings or were they from off-planet? Uh, they were human beings, but whether they were human beings with a particular kind of DNA, that right. I can't know. I mean, it's possible that 
half the strangeness of them is that they had fair hair and blue eyes. That could be part of their strangeness because I don't personally see how you can evolve fair hair and blue eyes out of out of what are supposed to be the root races, the African races who, who are meant to have so much of our DNA inherited from. So it may be that that kind of colouring came through from, from them. It would be very interesting to know uh, what DNA studies did throw up about that kind of mutation. Absolutely. So let's just return to where we were before the break with, with talking about Egypt and and let's bring in the, the, the role of the pharaoh and, the, and mm. the pyramids and the shamanic journey and how all that fits together. Sure. Well, the, the thing that, that we have to put aside are our 19th century views of, of what, what it is to talk about the soul. Uh, because in the 19th century, the view of talking about the soul was you talked about someone, someone died. And there are in the certain pyramids, what they call the coffin texts, which, discuss, which describe the journey of the pharaoh's soul. And it's always been assumed it, it was when he was dead. But actually, it's just as likely uh, this uh, description applies to when he was alive and actually experiencing a shamanic ritual. And he was having an out-of-body experience and journeying with his, with his soul, um, astral planning to the, to the ancestors. There's an Oxford academic called um, Dr. Jeremy Nadler who has published um, an interpretation of these texts uh, where he identifies very specifically the shamanic aspect of them. And, um, and that sheds a different light on what the pyramids were used for. They weren't used for tombs. They were used as part of a ritual where, where, the, where the pharaoh would be ritually buried for a, a, a period of time, as it were, three days, in order to have this, this experience. And to me, that, that makes far more sense of why you go to all that trouble to, to build these, these stunning monuments in the way that they were built. And so the, the pharaoh uh, was, had this incredible, huge responsibility then yeah. of, of going into these other realms and, and bringing yeah. back the necessary information to guide his, uh, his society. Absolutely. I, I mean, we have a rather distorted view of what power means. We think it just means the right to abuse people. But actually, well, I'm fairly sure that in the ancient concept, that it was the right of kings in, in the sense of R-I-T-E as opposed to R-I-G-H-T, and that to, to be privileged was a privilege because you were sac potentially sacrificing yourself on behalf of your people. And the, 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 I think the pharaohs took them, their responsibilities very seriously. It wasn't power just for power's, power's sake. And I think that it's plausible that his people were all totally engaged in, in all of this and they were all co-creating in, in that sense. They all had a, had a view of their karmic role and their, their, their duties in, in um, keeping civilization alive. So when people say that the Egyptians were sort of uh, obsessed by the afterlife, they actually were obsessed not by the afterlife, but the connections we could make in this life. Yes, yes, exactly. And that they had a very clear understanding that life and death are part of the same cycle, that reincarnation is very, is very important part of that whole thing. Do you want me to, to discuss the, um, the view of the Egyptian Hall of Judgment? Well, please do, yes. Um, because that, that, that is... To me, that is a really significant thing that sets apart 
their their idea and our modern views. Because in the Egyptian Hall of Judgment, the soul was led in to be judged before Osiris, the, the great god Osiris. And before the soul um, was judged by Osiris, he had to confess before uh, 42 different gods and goddesses negative confessions along the lines of, I have not committed adultery, I have not polluted the Nile, and so forth. And then what happened was is that the, the um, heart soul of the person was put into one side of weighing scales. On the other side of weighing scales was the feather of Mart, M-A-A-T, the feather of truth. And um, this is all in front of Osiris who is judging this. And then if the heart soul was found to be telling the truth, then the soul would uh, rise up and join the ancestors. If the heart soul was found to be not telling the truth, not to be a person of integrity, then there was this creature called, a hybrid creature called Apopis or Apopet, who was a crocodile, lion type thing. And this creature would consume the soul and the soul would be sent back into reincarnation, back into the material world to relearn the lessons that, that had, had gone wrong in, in, in the previous life. Now the difference is, is that um, the Egyptians had that, that view. The Christians took over, the monotheistic Christians took over many aspects of this iconography. They copied the cross, cross um, flail and crook of Osiris with the cross keys of St. Peter, who sits in judgment. They weighed the soul in the same sort of way, but instead of spirit world or, or reborn, you went to heaven or hell. And they completely got rid of any idea of the Hippocroc, of Apopis. They did not want people to know that they could be reincarnated. And in the second century AD, Oregon deliberately helps to introduce a doctrine of purgatory so that sinners might taste something bitter. This is, this is a very deliberate decision to help to in, increase fear and control of people. They had no, no um, knowledge that... that that meant them. There's nothing in the Bible that actually brought about this change. But in the second century AD, this was this was their decision. And I personally think that we in the West, in particular, without any knowledge of reincarnation, have suffered huge amounts of psychological distress, thinking that death is the end and that we all become separated. Whereas the ancient Egyptians totally understand that everything is in, interconnected, that life and death are part of an enormous um, cycle. Um, the ancient Celts, for example, used to weep when babies were born and rejoice when people died because, <laughs> you know, you're coming into a life of misery and going back. I've, to the I've always thought that was, uh, that was the right way around. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I was an ancient Celt at some point. Well, there you go. There you go. So you could relate to that one. So this is really important then. So the Egyptians were saying that if you hadn't uh, fulfilled your integrity, then you yes. came back yes. to relearn the lesson. Yes. So what we call hell, in fact, was to be reincarnated back yes. into another life. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And if you had passed all those tests, there was no need to come back, so you passed on into the spirit realm or the heaven worlds. That's right, exactly. E exactly that right. Uh, I, I, I want to go come, come back to um, what happened in terms of uh, Christianity and Rome in, in a moment, but before we do, I just wanted to touch on a couple of my favorite subjects, which is the alchemy that the Egyptians were involved in, and specifically the, the manna or the bread. Yeah, uh, that was part of that process. Yes. Well, um, manna is, as I understand it, is a word that means what is this. 
and um, it's possible that the um, Jews in exile were taken to the, I think possibly to this um, temple of Hathor, the Egyptian cow goddess Hathor, in the Sinai Peninsula. And because it's, it's alleged that it was in, at this temple um, that Flinders Petrie, the 19th century um, archaeologist, discovered an enormous quantity of um, mysterious white powder hidden under flagstones there. Um, and it could be that this white powder was what is known as monatomic gold. Um, and monatomic gold could, is, it could, could be the outcome of a purification of gold to the point where it becomes a powder. Um, and this, this might be the explanation for what is called the Philosopher's Stone. Um, the Philosopher's Stone is what alchemists all try to, try to produce. And um, I've tried to piece together a thing whereby uh, the pharaoh is consuming this philosopher's stone, this white powder, in the form of solar bread. And that the cow goddess Hathor, her temples were, I think, involved in the production of, of this. Fascinating, Lucy. We're about to come up to our next break. So, again, sure. the, the consumption of a material, the philosopher's stone... Uh, was part of the transmutation process to higher vibrational frequencies. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. We'll return with Lucy Wise after the break. She's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. What would you do if you came across a technology so profound that you move to balance within minutes of application, and from that balance, the body heals itself? We have the research, the testimonials, world-class health practitioners, and we conduct free demonstrations throughout North America and the world. Sound too good to be true? Click on the Amized Fusion Technology banner and find out for yourself and join us in a self-care revolution. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. 
years ago, Peter Tong left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm, the awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit petertongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at petertongue.com. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. I just want to remind you to, to go to my own website, www.petertongue.com, where you can see all of the different things we're up to and also listen to all of the archive shows, over 60 shows now, at your leisure, free. Uh, and also please do check out www.myheartcenteredjourney.com, where we host a regular, um, every two weeks, Ambassadors of Light um, class for one hour, uh, where we talk about all sorts of issues on the spiritual journey that are currently uh, happening. And uh, it's, a, it's a great little website with some wonderful opportunities for you to go on to your own awakening true path. I have with me today Lucy Wyatt, and we're having a fascinating discussion about the Egyptians in the Bronze Age and, and the information that they they had and that they worked with. And it, it sounds, Lucy, as if it was a, a, a pretty ideal type of society at that time. Oh. I wanted to ask you, uh, what went wrong? Well, what went wrong, I think, probably was another environmental disaster. But a thing that we must never lose sight of is the fact that Egypt stayed pretty consistent for such a long period of time. I mean, literally thousands of years. So it was a very powerfully based um, ancient concept. There's no, no doubt about it. But for me, the, the, the big shift really starts to occur, the weakening of Egypt around the time of the, of the fall of Troy, the, the, the change from Bronze Age to Iron Age. And that was attributable, I think, to another um, natural disaster, which is um, an Icelandic volcano, the Hekla volcano, that blew up in about 1159 um, B.C., and it's after that that certain um, tribes went on the move, in particular Indo-European tribes, who were better armed this time. They obviously had the secret of smelting iron, hence the name Iron Age. And um, it was much more difficult for um, essentially peaceful countries like Egypt uh, to, to, to resist um, these better armed tribes. And the decline of Egypt is quite slow, but it does, I think, start to decline from that time, time onwards. 
so we now shift into this this ice this sorry this iron age of uh, of militarism then this is when this yes. really begins yes i mean this is when we see the rise of of ancient rome this is when we see the ancient greeks come into their own um i mean the, the, these tribes they had been on the move since the previous um, massive, massive problem at the end of the fourth millennium, which is when they left their original homelands. And it's and now um, it's now that the Romans actually arrive in Rome um, during this this period. Um, it's very hard to date the precise arrival of um, the Latin-speaking tribes in in Rome, but it could be somewhere around the time of um, 700 BC, that, that sort of thing. And um, the Greeks were a bit more fragmented. Um, they, they basically, Greek-speaking tribes were basically all down the western coast of Turkey. They were around the southern part of Italy. It was called Magna Grecia, um, the greater Greece and the southern part of Italy. Um, and they may have been used as um, mercenaries by... Um, the Egyptian pharaoh uh, Ramesses as well, some Greek Greek speaking tribes. Uh, so they they were more spread about, but the Latin speaking ones at, at some point arrived on the crossing of the River Tiber, which is now what we call a place called Rome um, during, during that period, and definitely much more militaristic. Um, male sodalities is how they're described sometimes. Um, male, masculine, dom male-dominated tribes really um, mo moving about the countryside. And there's and there's some really interesting stuff around um, the Romans and the early Christianity that came in. Yes, I mean that's that's obviously um, quite quite a lot a lot later. I I mean the the the, the key the key factors here are how Roman society is organized. And Roman society is organized um, in such a way that everything is done for the greater glory of Rome. So um, sacrifices are made of people and armies and so forth for the greater glory of Rome. An end justifies the means type, type attitude. And... Um, but in terms of religion, the Romans were very tolerant, they were very open-minded, they weren't really too bothered, they picked up different beliefs from different peoples, such as their interest in Mithras, which they picked up from the Persians. Um, wherever they happened to be, they would absorb local cults and so forth. And what may well have happened sometime during the um, 4th century AD, so we're a lot, lot later um, now, the Emperor Constantine he may well have become, he must have become aware of, or they already knew about this religion called Christianity, but he must have become aware of how useful it would be as a kind of social political tool, because this idea of one God fits in very well to a whole political uh, organization where everything is sacrificed for the sake of a greater, greater glory, for the sake of Rome. So this one God, this one city, this one, one, this oneness, um, obviously appealed to him. And it's during the time of Constantine that that the Romans, instead of um, persecuting Christians, start to adopt their their religion and use it as a national national religion. That that's the time of the the big change. And I think that that Roman political aspect to it shouldn't be forgotten. And it was around that time also that there were some fanatical monks that went out and basically finished off any of the pagan um, Egyptian 
Alexandria uh, yeah. awarenesses. That, that's very true. But what we shouldn't uh, forget is that the Romans had actually been persecuting um, all sorts of people who had knowledge of ancient civilization. Um, I, I, I'm one of those who take the view that the, um, the decision to destroy the Druids was the motive for the Romans to come to Britain, for, for instance. Um, and they fought various campaigns that had no strategic military benefit, but, for example, um, attacking the Comagian in the, in the center of, of Turkey in the old Hittite kingdom is where the Babylonian Magi, um, the Chaldean Magi still were, and that was, I think, the reason for the Roman campaign in about AD 70 when they, when they uh, attacked that. So it's slightly misleading to think of Romans only um, persecuting Christians. They actually uh, persecuted all sorts of people. Pythagoreans they, they threw out of Italy and, and persecuted. They destroyed all books on alchemy wherever they came across them uh, long before they converted to Christianity. So in a sense, the attacks on the Great Library in Alexandria and on the um, last temple of Isis on the island of Philae in Egypt were just symptomatic of this general attack on ancient knowledge, but this time they were using Christianity as, 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 the, as the tool, as it were, for, for motivating these, these fanatics. And this sort of took us into the Dark Ages. Um, so yeah. how, how did the threads of the sacred knowledge and the awareness, how did that get just about retained? <laughs> how did it stay alive at all? Well, I think what must have happened is around the time of the 4th century um, AD, you have things like the Gnostic Gospels were then buried at Nag Hammadi in um, Egypt. Uh, so things were obviously really bad. Um, quite a lot of Egyptians with knowledge had gone back up the trade routes to northern Syria. Um, and it's amazing how much collected around the city of Haran in the, in the northern Euphrates. And Haran is, is famous for being the place where Abraham's father Terah dies. Um, and it's, 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 it's um, been a famous city for a very, very long time. And many of these e Egyptians were practicing alchemists, uh, particularly a group called the Sabians, who, who had um, profound knowledge of alchemy. And so Haran became a very much a base for, for all of this kind of thing. And um, it's said from there uh, that people went with the knowledge to create cities like Baghdad and, and so forth. Um, these are people who, who knew about the Hermetica, the Emerald Tablet, the, the sort of mystical writings of Hermes Trismegistus, um, reincarnated from the god, Egyptian god Zoth. And, um, and so that Haran became effectively an enclave uh, and also the city nearby at San Liulfa, which is known as Edessa. And I think San Liulfa, I agree with Adrian Gilbert, that this was the original Ur of the Chaldees um, name, named in the, in the Bible. And uh, Edessa, San Liulfa, became a, a Christian um, kingdom. And it is the reason why the Second Crusade uh, was preached by St. Bernard of Clairvaux at, at Vézelay which would be in um, oh, whatever time, time was, 12th, um, 13th century AD in the Middle Ages. Um, 
before the Gothic, great Gothic cathedrals are, are, are built. And this information was also protected by is, Islam in, inadvertently, because these people with this knowledge managed to inspire all that civilizing aspect of Islam, the flowering of Islam in Moorish Spain and southern Spain and, and Iraq and other places. It's really interesting listening to you speak about all of this and, and naming these places and looking at what's happening in the world today and, and all the conflict that is raging around these, these areas and the idea that, in fact, Islam was an integral part of keeping this ancient wisdom alive is, is remarkable. Uh, we need to go to our last break, Lucy, so we'll do so now and uh, looking forward to the last segment. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way. Four years ago, Peter Tung left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm, the awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit petertongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at petertongue.com. What would you do if you came across a technology so profound that you move to balance within minutes of application and from that balance the body heals itself? We have the research, the testimonials, world-class health practitioners, and we conduct free demonstrations throughout North America and the world. Sound too good to be true? Click on the Amized Fusion Technology banner and find out for yourself and join us in a self-care revolution. There is a lot more going on in religion and government than what high-ranking officials are telling you. The Bible uncovers the truth, prophecies, and a world of opportunities. Get the answers you need when you tune into the program To the Stars and Beyond with your hosts Michael List and Adam Hong. We'll explore the religious and spiritual beliefs from ancient history to the prophecies that are shaping the world and current events of today. To the Stars and Beyond airs live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. 
Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. And I have my guest with me today, Lucy Wyatt. Approaching chaos, could an ancient archetype save 21st century civilization? This book is well worth the read. It's a, it's a detailed analysis of what has taken place in uh, civilization really since time began up to the present moment. And Lucy has really covered the basis fully and uh, certainly in, in reading it, gave me a lot of insights in areas that I was wanting to know about and didn't. Um, so, Lucy, um, if anybody would like to get the book or make uh, contact with you, what is, what is the way they can do that? Uh, sure. Well, the book is, is available on Amazon, and all they need to do is, is search on Amazon under my surname, Wyatt, W-Y-A-T-T, and then do plus chaos, and it'll come up. Or alternatively, I have got a website, which is um, www.approachingchaos.co.uk, um, and there's an email address on that, so I'm always happy to engage with people. Or you can find me on Facebook, you know, all that sort of thing. Oh, excellent. I'm around. Perfect. <laughs> um, Perfect. So, yeah, plenty of... And, and I do go out and do talks and, and, and so forth, so I'm always willing to talk to people without about right. it. So let's just return to our, our sort of historical development going on here. You, at, the, at the end of the last, having danced around somewhat, at the end of the last segment, we were talking about Bernard of Claveau going in the Second Crusade uh, yes. to connect, in fact, with the um, in the Middle East and, and yes. bringing information back with him, which he did in, in coming back to to France. So sure. let's talk a little bit about that. Well, the thing the thing about the Second Crusade is that there was no there was no real religious reason or, or, or even military reason for, for, for it to be um, conducted because um, the first crusade had been about rescuing um, Jerusalem and the second crusade about this kingdom of Edessa, which was an isolated kingdom surrounded by Islamic states. Um, but the key thing, as far as I can see, is the fact that Edessa was right next to Haran, this ancient center of, of alchemy and the enclave where, where ancient knowledge had, had um, remained protected. And, um, and also the Knights Templars, who um, Bernard Clever was in, involved, instrumental in writing up their orders. He had an uncle who was um, a member of it, and he had his own land for his uh, foundation from um, the Count of, of uh, Champagne who was, uh, also became a, a member of the Knights Templars. So a lot of connections between the Templars and Clever, um, St. Bernard himself. And uh, I think after the First Crusade and Jerusalem had been recaptured, I think these, these various individuals who became the Knights Templars became aware of knowledge that, that particularly the um, Muslims had, because they employed... Uh, various uh, Islamic um, people to to be their local translators and and secretaries and so forth, and I think they decided to find out more if they could. But this they had to be very careful because obviously this could be seen as blasphemous knowledge and contrary to the teachings of the church. So they were quite secretive about it all. And, and in particular, one of the things that they brought back was this knowledge of geometry, because believe it or not, we had lost knowledge of, of Euclid and geometry as part of our dark age knowledge loss. And it's through the use of geometry that they were able to build these amazing Gothic cathedrals. 
Uh, and the link with the Near East is shown very clearly in how the three-pointed arch that you find as a Gothic um, icon, really, of this style of architecture is very much based on the same kind of designs as various Islamic mosques and, and so forth. And the other thing to, to know about the geometry is, um, and particularly the application of sacred geometry, is to know that the, the structural strength of these buildings the, is, is the geometry is integral to the structural strength. They knew how to to build these huge, amazing spires, such as places like Salisbury Cathedral or, or, or wherever, all these amazing charts or, or, or whatever in France, because of this knowledge of, of, geom of geometry. And it's like an inadvertent outcome that, that they didn't need to know anything else about, um, uh, about uh, structural engineering in order to... Um, achieve these these issues. Just the sheer application of, of geometry was enough, which is an extraordinary thought. And again, it was about this reconnection to spirit through building these sacred yes. geometrical structures. And the other person you did uh, talk about in the book in, in a more modern time that was critical in, in this return was Cosimo de Medici in the Renaissance. Yes, yes. well, um, there, there was the quite... Well, well, basically what happened was there was this thing called the Great the Great Plague um, in Europe. And during the time of the Great Plague, um, people rather lost their confidence in the church because their idea was is that if God is so powerful, how come we're all dying of this dreadful disease? And, and um, it's then that you start to get a kind of vernacular thing happening. You know, people like Dante, Italian poet Dante, is starting to, to write and so forth. And people became very interested in very, very old manuscripts, older than Noah, and were sending um, aristocrats were sending out to to ha receive manuscripts, and Cosimo de Medici was was one of those who who was interested in in finding out information that wasn't necessarily contained in in the Bible, and his particular thing that he wanted to get hold of was something called the Hermetica, which is one of these ancient this Hermes Trismegistus texts that um, would have been around in Haran and and the Emerald Tablets and so forth. Lucy, we're actually, we're actually coming up to the end of the show. I, I can't believe how fast time <laughs> so has gone here. I just wanted anyway, to give you a final uh, statement to make because the key thing here is what we actually do about it now. So in one, in one very short paragraph, just, just tell us what we need to be doing now. Take it seriously. <laughs> take it all seriously. <laughs> really seriously look at the Bronze Age and take it seriously and... Read, read my book, and you'll see how I, de I define the principles of civilization, what it all means, their respect for animals, their respect for the soul of everything. Everything has energy. Energy and mass are interconnected, as E equals MC squared tells us, and we need to understand that, and we are all connected. And the ancients understood that, and they could live in cities, and that's what we need to realize. We can still be sophisticated, we can still be comfortable, but we must be connected. Thank you, Lucy. That's a great summary. And I'm sorry we crashed to a very uh, fast That's end there. Right. We've covered a few thousand years, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> Another time, Peter. Another Thank time. you. Absolutely. Thank you. That's so right. we've got to reconnect with nature, reconnect with spirit, and live our lives harmoniously with the land and that ability to connect across the veils into the realms of illumined truth. That's the message. <laughs> and still do it in a city. And still That's do it in a city, right? Got it. Yeah, Thank you so much. Structure, 
Sacred space within a city. Sacred space within a city, absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this chat. Thank, Thank you. you, Peter. So next week, my guest is George Cavasilas, who's another wonderful, well-informed guest who will be talking about all the big picture stuff around ascension, what we need to be doing, the return of the sacred feminine, the extraterrestrial beings who are involved in this process, both the good guys and the not-so-good guys. So it'll be a great show. I hope you've enjoyed today's show, and have a wonderful week. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tong for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.